0: At just before 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday, March 5th, 1966, British Overseas Airways Corporation Flight 911, callsign Speedbird 911, took off from Tokyo's Haneda International Airport. Bound for Hong Kong, The Boeing 707 should have been in the air for just a bit more than four and a half hours. Yet just 15 minutes into the flight, at about 16,000 feet, the plane broke apart in mid-air. 16,000 feet is almost 4,900 meters. On board were 113 passengers and 11 crew. There were no survivors. The weather conditions were not an issue, nothing obvious anyway. There were no thunderstorms, no typhoons, there was no rain or snow. It was a sunny, clear, cloud-free day. It was so nice that the crew had requested a VMC clearance so they could stay a bit lower than normal and stray a bit west of their intended route to Hong Kong. VMC stands for Visual Meteorological Conditions. Compared to a standard IFR flight plan, It would give the captain a little more latitude in the route of flight. This was not an unusual request, and it was done so that the captain could give the passengers a nice view of the snow-capped Mount Fuji, just 60 miles or about 100 kilometers southwest of Tokyo. Other pilots had done it to view Mount Fuji, and this captain had done it just two weeks before. It was while viewing Mount Fuji in this sightseeing mode that Flight 911 met its demise. What happened to this airplane? What caused the mid-air breakup? Was it a bomb? Did the plane strike the mountainside? Was it a mechanical failure of some kind? Was the plane unsafe? Had the crew made a mistake? Or, despite the sunny skies, was the weather somehow to blame? This is Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. I'm your host, Dave Gorham. I'm a retired meteorologist with a career in the United States Air Force commercial and broadcast weather forecasting with a specialty of aviation meteorology. I've provided weather support to Air Force One and to Marine One. I've briefed military and corporate flight crews. I've been both a television and radio broadcast meteorologist and have spent a large part of my career providing military and commercial weather support to clients in all parts of the world. I've created this podcast series to bring you interesting but tragic stories of airplane crashes that are either caused by the weather or when the weather is a contributing factor to the crash. Today's episode, when a Boeing 707 broke apart in midair near Mount Fuji, is the tragic tale of a commercial jetliner that broke apart in flight while passengers were enjoying glorious views of the iconic Mount Fuji in east-central Japan, not far from Tokyo. It wasn't immediately known why the plane broke apart, but many witnesses on the ground with cameras documented the breakup and then the spin downward to the ground. In the end, the crash was attributed to clear air turbulence, a common occurrence that affects most flights, to one degree or another, in every part of the world. What happened on this day in 1966? A plane falling apart in mid-air due to turbulence is incredibly rare. In fact, short of the extenuating circumstances such as the pilot intentionally flying into areas of known extreme turbulence, it's not wrong to say it just doesn't happen. Yet on this day, with this airplane, it did happen and 124 people lost their lives. Fortunately, there were no deaths or injuries to people on the ground. In this episode, the Radar Contact Loss team will examine what happened. We'll look at the airplane, the pilot, the airline, and Mount Fuji itself. But we'll also take a dive into the phenomenon known as clear air turbulence or CAT, C-A-T. Not only what it is, but how, why, and where it occurs, and why on this day, over Japan, BOAC Flight 911 was ripped apart in midair. Then, near the end of the episode, I'll discuss a couple of unrelated, but related items. First, why the year 1966 was such a devastating year in Japan for aviation with five deadly commercial airliner crashes. And second, since this episode is going to be about turbulence, I'll take a few moments to explain why hurricane hunter aircraft those research airplanes that fly directly into hurricanes without fear well without much fear why those planes specifically fly into turbulence but don't crash i hope you'll stick around for all of that now on with our story Mount Fuji stands 12,388 feet tall. That's 3,766 meters. Located on the main island of Honshu, it's the tallest mountain in Japan and the second tallest volcano within the islands of Asia. It's classified as a stratovolcano, which means it has the symmetrical, conical shape of a volcano that I think most of us are familiar with. In fact, Mount Fuji is so symmetrical and so perfect that it has been a cultural icon of Japan for countless years. And because it's covered in snow for almost half the year, it's about as photogenic as it can be. It's a highlight for tourists, including hikers and mountain climbers. And as you can imagine, one of the best sights of Mount Fuji is from the air. Air traffic around Mount Fuji is common. Though considered an active volcano, The last eruption of Mount Fuji was in 1707. That's more than 300 years ago, and in the world of geology that's the proverbial blink of an eye, and so the volcano is still considered an active volcano. As if to underline that status, new research indicates that the next eruption may be on the sooner rather than later side. In 2021, the Mount Fuji eruption hazard map was updated for the first time in 17 years, and experts say that an eruption could happen at any time. As of this production in October of 2023, there are no indications of an eruption in the near future. The circumstances related to Mount Fuji and Flight 911 are interesting. Shortly before takeoff, the captain amended the flight to VMC. Again, that's Visual Meteorological Conditions. As I mentioned, This allows the captain some leeway to deviate from the official flight plan. If you're like me, you might be wondering why this commercial and international airliner was flying at the relatively low altitude of just 16,000 feet or 4,900 meters. Given the distance from their departure airport, about 60 miles, I would have thought they'd be much higher, but the captain made the change to VMC So he could take the plane closer to Mount Fuji and give the passengers a better view of the snow-capped peak. An odd choice or an odd decision in 2023, but apparently that kind of thing was not uncommon in 1966. The debris field for flight 911, call sign Speedbird 911, was scattered across 10 miles. That's 16 kilometers. This indicates that the plane broke up in mid-air rather than crashing into the ground in one piece where the debris field would have been much more confined. A witness to the crash reported, quote, "The aircraft was flying as high as Mount Fuji and I could see smoke at its tail. I heard a bang and afterwards the tail and the main fuselage broke apart." and the aircraft began spinning down. Just before impact, the nose and the fuselage parted." This witness was one of many witnesses on the scene. No surprise, really. It was a glorious Saturday in March, the sun was shining, and there was not a cloud in the sky. The past few days had been stormy, and so it was the perfect opportunity for tourists and residents alike to take in the tallest mountain in Japan. Hundreds of Mount Fuji tourists watched the plane fall from the sky. Investigators examining the remains of the plane discovered that the plane first lost its vertical stabilizer. It amazes me how investigators are able to reconstruct the plane after a crash. But in this case, they discovered smears of the vertical stabilizer's paint across the horizontal stabilizer on the left side or the port side of the airplane, indicating that as the vertical stabilizer tore away, it scratched across the horizontal stabilizer and it did more than scratch the stabilizer. It actually broke some of it away. Simply, this is a worst case scenario for an airplane. Losing any control surface is bad, but losing the large fin known as the vertical stabilizer that stands up at the back of the airplane, that's about as bad as losing a wing. Add to that the loss of a portion of the horizontal stabilizer and the plane's fate was sealed. That said, a plane can be flown without a vertical stabilizer. In episode seven of Radar Contact Lost, I detailed how three years before this crash in 1963, a US Air Force B-52 bomber had crashed because it lost its vertical stabilizer during low-level training maneuvers in the United States. Now, that plane crashed, but in testing later, it was discovered that a B-52 could fly without most of the vertical stabilizer, but there had to be enough altitude and time for the pilot to figure out what was wrong and then how to fly the crippled airplane. It's true, there are instances of planes flying without a vertical stabilizer. Some planes are even designed without a vertical stabilizer, like the B-2 Spirit and the brand new B-21 Raider, both U.S. Air Force stealth bombers of the so-called flying wing design. Based on what investigators pieced together at the base of Mount Fuji and the accounts of witnesses on the ground, The plane was first seen trailing a white vapor before it began to break apart, so perhaps a fuel tank may have ruptured first. Then, after the loss of the vertical stabilizer and a piece of the horizontal stabilizer, the plane pitched downward and to the left. It all happened very quickly and there was nothing the crew could do to save the plane. The forces brought about by the spin and the dive ripped all four of the engines off the two wings, ripped off the remainder of the tail assembly, then, just before impacting the ground, the starboard wing came off and the front of the fuselage separated from what was left of the plane. It was an ugly crash. Investigators also discovered stress fractures around the holes of the bolts that held the 707's vertical tail fin in place. The final report stated that the stress fractures did not contribute to the crash of Speedbird 911. In the case of the B-52 that crashed in 1963, it was determined that the bolts that held the vertical stabilizer in place had failed, so they were strengthened and replaced. And though the bolts were blamed, the bomber most likely would not have lost its tail had it not been for the pilot's attempt to climb above the severe mountain turbulence that it had encountered. In other words, it was the stress of the pull-up and the bolts that weren't quite up to the task that broke the tail of the bomber, not the turbulence itself. Mount Fuji is well known for difficult and turbulent air currents and certain weather conditions will amplify this effect. I mentioned earlier that it had been stormy the day before and now, on the day of the crash, the skies were crystal clear. It was also blustery and a bit chilly. The weather station at the top of Mount Fuji that day reported a gust to 110 km per hour. That's almost 70 miles per hour. Without even looking at the weather maps from that day, I know there's only one way for all of that to happen. A strong cold front had passed across Japan, and now, strong high pressure was in control. That explains the storminess the day before. In fact, the same storms had caused this plane to divert to a different airport the previous evening. And then, all the crew and passengers had to spend an unplanned night in a hotel while waiting for the storms to clear. Now, with the cold front well to the east, high pressure was creating gusty northwest winds, but with sunny skies across most of Japan. Ideal conditions for sightseeing, but not so ideal for flying an airplane close to a mountain. There's an old Japanese proverb that says, When the sky is blue, Fuji is angry. Turbulence is part of flying. You could almost say that where there is air, there is turbulence. Let's start, though, with a definition. Turbulence is fluid motion, characterized by chaotic changes in pressure, temperature, and flow velocity. It is in contrast to laminar flow, which occurs when fluid flows in parallel layers, with no disruption between those layers. But that definition is a bit too broad for our purposes. We need to drill down and talk about what, specifically, caused Speedbird 911 to crash. And how this type of turbulence impacts each one of us when we fly what we're interested in is clear air turbulence also known as cat or c-a-t here's the cat definition clear air turbulence is the turbulent movement of air masses in the absence of any visual clues such as clouds and is caused when bodies of air moving at widely different speeds meet The FAA's definition, that's the Federal Aviation Administration, adds a few more particulars. Clear air turbulence is defined as sudden, severe turbulence occurring in cloudless regions that causes violent buffeting of aircraft. The term CAT is commonly applied to higher-altitude turbulence associated with wind shear. Generally, though, CAT definitions exclude turbulence caused by thunderstorms, low-altitude temperature inversions, thermals, strong surface winds, or local terrain features. Note that the FAA definition specifies that this feature occurs in the absence of any visual clues, such as clouds. Let's remember, this is called clear air turbulence. Now, why is that important? It's important because clouds imply turbulence. And because clear air turbulence happens, well, in clear air. This means then that it is invisible to the pilot. Let's back up a bit. I just mentioned that clouds imply turbulence. Why is this? Well, clouds are made of water droplets. These droplets are formed when water vapor in the atmosphere condenses when it is cooled. This cooling occurs when the air is lifted. That lifting caused by a variety of reasons, is due to upward motion in the atmosphere. And that upward motion can cause turbulence, or actually is turbulence. How fast the air is moving and how broad the area is will determine the severity and the extent of the turbulence. Even high-altitude cirrus clouds are formed by lifting and are formed when water vapor freezes directly into ice crystals. Cirrus clouds can also be associated with the jet stream and can therefore be turbulent due to the strong winds of the jet stream itself. Now that I've described how cloud formation is related to upward moving air, let me bring this back to turbulence. Air rises, yes, but how does it crash an airplane? If you're visualizing all of this, you can probably guess that we've got currents of air rising all over the place, and we do and it's all rising at a different rate and so air over the cool ocean or over a hot city or cool green pasture all of it is rising at a different rate because hot air rises yes but air of different temperature will rise at different rates now climb into your airplane and fly a straight line through all of that from the pasture to the city to the ocean parts in the shade parts in the sun will it be bumpy as you're flying around the short answer is yes However, exactly where and how bumpy has yet to be determined. Your airplane, your altitude, your speed, all of it will influence the way you will experience that turbulence. Ask any small airplane pilot about flying on a hot summer day in the lower altitudes and they will tell you that it will be bumpy. They can actually feel the difference between flying over a field in direct sunshine and a field shaded by clouds. Glider, ultralight, and paramotor pilots are even more sensitive to these subtle changes in temperature and upward vertical motion. Even birds, soaring in circles high above, are riding currents of hot air that keep them aloft with very little effort on their part. As we talk about turbulence, I think it would be helpful to imagine a river, a river of fluid, dynamic water, In fact, as a gas, our atmosphere behaves just like a fluid, so the comparison of air to water is perfect. The jet stream is a major source of turbulence. I think the jet stream is a fairly well-understood phenomena. A band or river of high-speed, high-altitude air flowing around the planet. There are several jet streams, each at a particular altitude, each over certain parts of the planet, each flowing from west to east. Jet streams are in both the northern and southern hemispheres. The jet streams are higher in altitude near the equator, lower in altitude closer to the north and south poles. These jet streams have their origins due to temperature differences across the globe and can thank their west to east direction due to the rotation of the Earth. Now, thinking of a river of water, visualize what happens when a small, fast-moving river enters a broad, slow-moving river. Where the two rivers meet, there will be a lot of turbulence. Water that is swirling and churning, chopping up and diving down, moving every which way. Also, imagine how the water interacts with the banks of the river. The edge of the water flowing against the bank. The water kind of chews, rubs, and swirls along the bank. This is due to friction, friction caused by the flowing water along the dirt or the earth along the bank of the river. In fact, given enough time, this friction will actually change the direction of the river, digging and carving here, depositing and smoothing there. This is exactly what happens with a jet stream high above our heads there is friction or turbulence at the edge of the jet stream where it interacts with slower air that is not part of the jet stream. Then all of that air is comprised of air molecules that are bumping and rubbing against one another, the faster ones against the slower ones. Right there is where we will find the turbulence. In the atmosphere, this type of turbulence is caused by shear, speed shear or air of different speeds in the same location. Another way turbulence will form is when the wind changes direction. The same bumping of molecules occurs because air flowing more slowly, closer to the center or the inside of the turn, bumps and collides with air flowing more quickly, farthest away from the center or along the outside of the turn. As the jet stream bends and turns across the hemisphere, it creates broad areas of directional shear and therefore turbulence. Both these types of turbulence, speed shear and directional shear, are common. But wait, there's more because there are still more types of turbulence. In addition to shear related turbulence, another type of turbulence is known as mechanical turbulence. This is when air is forced up or around an object. How strong the turbulence will be is dependent on the speed of the airflow and the height of the mountain, as well as the angle of the upward slope of the mountain. A high mountain with a steep slope will amplify the turbulence as compared to a smaller mountain with a shallow slope. And another thing to consider is the angle of the wind across the mountain range. Lastly, the strength of the wind will propagate the turbulence downstream or downwind. The stronger the winds over the mountain, the farther downwind the turbulence will persist. And this could be for hundreds of miles. Additionally, waves closest to the mountain are strongest and those farther downwind will be weakest. This type of turbulence, as it's deflected around and over a mountain, is called mountain wave turbulence. FedEx First Officer Larry was telling me that on a recent westbound flight, he experienced mountain wave turbulence that originated over the Rocky Mountains and continued eastward into the plains. That's easily four or 500 miles of turbulence. On another flight, he experienced mountain wave turbulence from Colorado deep into Texas. That was more than 600 miles. To forecast mountain wave turbulence, the aviation meteorologist must know the strength, direction, and height of the wind the height of the mountain range and the orientation of the mountain range and the angle that the wind is crossing the mountain range. Armed with that information, the aviation meteorologist can then make an accurate turbulence forecast, not only for the intensity, but for the specific area downwind from the mountain range. Unlike other types of turbulence, mountain wave turbulence is stationary in that it is tied to the wind flowing across a given mountain range. Areas of turbulence caused by speed shear or directional shear with a jet stream will move along with the jet stream, but mountain wave turbulence, since it is caused by the mountain, will stay with the mountain, changing its area only when the wind over the mountain changes. Because mountain wave turbulence forms in clear air, it is invisible to the pilot. But sometimes there is a visual confirmation of possible mountain wave turbulence, and it comes in the form of clouds. All clouds are formed when water vapor condenses into droplets, and that happens because water vapor is lifted higher into the atmosphere. We talked about this a few minutes ago, but in the case of lenticular clouds, the air is forced higher due to a mountain. Because the mountain is stationary, of course, the cloud formation is stationary also, as it is directly related to the air flowing over the mountain. As the air flows away from the mountain, the lifting mechanism is lost and the clouds begin to dissipate, though the turbulence is likely to continue. The word lenticular is from the Latin lenticularis, which means lentil-shaped. Lenticular clouds have a very smooth, well-defined, and sharp edge and are in the shape of lentils or almonds. If a pilot sees the distinctive lenticular clouds, it's wise to consider mountain wave turbulence. When it comes to forecasting and understanding turbulence, the aviation meteorologist does the heavy lifting, but the pilot has a lot to consider. shear, mountains, cloud shape. If the turbulence is strong enough, the pilot will want to alter the flight path to avoid the turbulence, if that's possible. And that's sometimes easier said than done. Military, corporate, and general aviation pilots have more route-altering flexibility than commercial pilots, but sometimes the area of turbulence is just too large to avoid. Consider, if flying from Los Angeles to New York, the flight must cross the Rocky Mountains. But where is the jet stream? How high is the jet stream? How strong is the jet stream? How broad is the jet stream? A broad jet stream crossing the Rocky Mountains may create an area of turbulence that is thousands of square miles in coverage, and it may be five or 10,000 or more feet deep. Can the airplane climb over that turbulence, or fly around it, or under it? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Except most flights are smooth. Given everything we've talked about, how is this even possible? A pilot can look at the weather maps and get a general idea about where the turbulence will be. An aviation meteorologist can really focus that general idea and provide a more exact forecast of where, when, how strong, how high, and for how long the turbulence will last. So even before the pilot arrives at the airport to begin the flight, there will already be a very good understanding of where and when the flight will encounter turbulence. The pilot, the flight planner, or the dispatcher will create the flight plan using the forecast from the aviation meteorologist so that the turbulence is avoided or, at the least, minimalized. Another key way to avoid in-flight turbulence is to heed the warnings of other pilots who have already, as they say, been there and done that. Pilot reports, or reps are first-hand accounts from other pilots of where and how strong the turbulence is, or has been. Let me add here that reports of no turbulence may sound boring, but those reps are just as important as the ones that report turbulence. In other words, knowing where the turbulence isn't is just as important as knowing where it is. A problem, though, with reps is that they may not be a priority to the pilot. After all, the pilot has a lot of responsibility on the flight deck and sending a report of turbulence to other pilots may not be high on the priority list. This highlights one of the problems with PIREPs. They rely on the pilot to send them, either when time allows or when the pilot thinks to do so. There are a lot of airplanes flying around up there, but it's a big sky and more data is always better than less. First Officer Larry tells me that usually when they switch frequencies from one air traffic control center to the next, the controllers will ask the pilots for a PIREP. I'll clarify that a bit because Cindy, one of our air traffic controllers here on the podcast, reports that air traffic controllers do indeed have requirements for when to solicit PIREPs from pilots and then when and how to disseminate them into the air traffic control network. Because pilots and controllers are busy, I should mention a system that came online just a few years ago. This system uses existing aircraft sensors to monitor parameters such as the airplane's speed, angle of attack, altitude, wind, temperature, and more, so that when predetermined turbulence thresholds are met or exceeded by the airplane, an automated message is sent to ground stations. This is done without input from the pilot. The system is called Turbulence Aware, and it is monitored and maintained by IATA, the International Air Transport Association. Turbulence Aware is new but recently reported that 15 airlines are signed up to use it so there are a lot of airplanes out there that are using it but an awful lot that are not as i said a moment ago more data is always better than less data and i hope more carriers sign up for turbulence aware okay so we've talked about the types and causes of turbulence But what about the severity of turbulence, or how turbulence is classified, and how turbulence-related injuries can occur? According to the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, the turbulence that occurs on commercial flights is the leading cause of non-fatal injuries suffered by airline travelers. Every year, passengers and flight attendants sustain injuries caused by turbulence. Common injuries include whiplash, much like being rear-ended in a car, whiplash results when a person's head snaps back and forth. Unsecured objects in the cabin can cause bruises, cuts, and lacerations when turbulence occurs. Passengers not wearing seatbelts, either while seated or walking in the aisles, can suffer soft tissue injuries and even broken bones. Passengers can collide into one another, with the possibility of significant injury being the result. Flight attendants can suffer serious injuries if they're caught unbelted during periods of turbulence. Fastening your seatbelts and wearing them securely around your lower waist is the best and most effective way to minimize your chance of injury. Now let's put some labels on the classifications of turbulence, and then I'll describe each one. From mild to wild, we have chop, light, moderate, severe, and extreme turbulence. From the National Weather Service in the United States, here are the definitions for turbulence intensity. chop a type of turbulence that causes rapid and somewhat rhythmic bumpiness. There can be light and moderate chop, but stronger than that and you're usually into the full-blown turbulence categories. So, here they are. Light. Slight, erratic changes in altitude and or attitude. Unsecured objects may be slightly displaced. Food service easily conducted. No difficulty walking. May feel a slight strain against the seat belts. Moderate. Change in altitude or attitude, but the aircraft remains in positive control at all times. Unsecured objects dislodged. Food service and walking is difficult. Passengers will feel definite strain against their seat belts. Severe. Large, abrupt changes in altitude and or attitude. Aircraft may be momentarily out of control. Passengers will be forced violently against their seat belts. Extreme. Aircraft is violently tossed about and practically out of control. May cause structural damage. Strong desire to land. And by the way, I googled the types of injuries that occurred with turbulence in an airplane, and most of the sources of information were from law firms. As a passenger, you might wonder how to avoid turbulence. I think the short answer is, you can't. And I say that because you don't have many options. If you're at point A, and you need to get to point B, well, you gotta go. Pilots and air traffic control can do their best to avoid or minimize turbulence, but the plane is built to handle the stress. I think it's safe to say that avoiding turbulence falls into the category of comfort and convenience, rather than safety or danger. Sometimes, though, it helps just to be aware of where you might be most likely to experience turbulence. That way, you can get yourself psyched up or prepared for it and then be pleasantly surprised when it doesn't happen or that it's not as bad as you thought it might be. There are certain places where turbulence is more prevalent. As an example, the North Atlantic Ocean is a good place to experience turbulence. Most of the time, you can draw a great circle line from New York to London, and that's exactly where the jet stream is. In the winter, the jet stream will twist and turn, and as I've already explained, that can be bumpy due to both directional and speed shear. A night flight can perhaps minimize that. Cooler temperatures, less temperature contrast than when the sun is shining, can help smooth things out. Same thing happens across the North Pacific Ocean. A flight from Tokyo to San Francisco or from Denver to Hong Kong has a decent chance of being bumpy because that's where the jet streams are usually found. On the other hand, Los Angeles to Honolulu might be pretty smooth as the jet stream typically isn't in that area. Although, if you've heard of the Pineapple Express, then you know the jet stream can be there sometimes too. Also, flights that cross the equator can be bumpy. There's lots of hot air rising near the equator. That means lots of thunderstorms, lots of convective turbulence. The area is, after all, the center of the ITCZ, the Intertropical Convergence Zone. Summertime can be just as bumpy as wintertime flying. Again, hot air and thunderstorms can make for a bumpy ride. Likewise, winter storms and cold fronts are certainly responsible for their fair share of turbulence, especially in the lower altitudes when you're most likely to be approaching or departing an airport. As you can tell, it's difficult to avoid turbulence completely, yet the professionals flying your airplane do a fine job of getting you to your destination smoothly and comfortably, at least most of the time. Lastly, if worst comes to worst, if the turbulence is as bad as it could possibly be, will turbulence crash your airplane? Some aviation authorities will say emphatically, no. I, on the other hand, will say, it depends. What turbulence really does to an airplane is not rip it apart, but cause a sudden and sometimes severe change in altitude. But I think it's how that turbulence is defined that may give pause to answering the question of, can turbulence crash my plane? Turbulence, even severe turbulence at cruising altitudes of modern jetliners, will not rip the wings off an airplane and cause it to crash. So, is that the answer? Is that the only answer? Planes are built to manage the physical stresses of turbulence. A drop of several thousand feet is possible. Although, it may cause injury to those who are not already buckled into their seats, but the plane will not be ripped apart by turbulence. But, and there's always a but, a severe change in altitude close to the ground may indeed cause an airplane to crash. Like when a plane is near a thunderstorm and is impacted by convective turbulence or a downburst, a plane can be slammed into the ground. Or the opposite. First Officer Larry told me of a time when he and his A300 were flying near a thunderstorm. He described the updraft from that storm to be like riding an elevator straight up. He said the attitude of the airplane remained straight and level, but they went up at a rate of 6,000 feet per minute, or about 1,800 meters per minute. They were not in the thunderstorm, only near it at the recommended safe distance. Typically, plane crashes near thunderstorms are caused by microbursts or downdrafts where strong, irregular shearing movements of air can happen close to the ground. If the pilot does not have enough altitude to recover from being impacted by such wind, a crash will be the result. Did turbulence cause the crash, or did pilot error cause the crash? A pilot making the proper decisions would not put the airplane into a position to be affected by possible turbulence like that. And that brings us back to the 1966 crash of British Overseas Airways Flight 911. Was it turbulence that ripped apart the Boeing that sunny day near Mount Fuji? It was. This is a very, very rare occurrence, but yes, the investigators blamed the crash on, quote, as a result of its encounter with abnormally severe turbulence over Gotemba City, which imposed a gust load considerably in excess of the design limit. It also stated, "...it is not unreasonable to assume that, on the day of the accident, powerful mountain waves existed in the Lee of Mount Fuji, as in the case of mountain waves formed by extended ridges, and that the breakdown of the waves resulted in small-scale turbulence, the intensity of which might have become severe or extreme in a short period of time." In a case like this, When we're going back decades and I'm trying to find weather data, I like to call my friend Joe Spain, a forensic meteorologist and owner of Risk Consulting. For previous Radar Contact Lost episodes, Joe has provided me with the data that I have needed to analyze the weather conditions surrounding some of the plane crashes that have been featured here on this podcast. For me to understand the severity of the mountain wave turbulence near Mount Fuji on March 5, 1966, it would be tremendously helpful to have the wind data for a variety of altitudes around and above Mount Fuji. Unfortunately, Joe was busy preparing for an upcoming project, so I had to do without and look elsewhere. You might be wondering, however, What about the flight data recorder? That would provide data and that would indicate the conditions experienced by the 707 as it encountered the mountain wave and then as it began to break up and fall from the sky. Unfortunately, the flight data recorders for the early 707s were located in the cockpit. In this case, the recorder was burned beyond use. The other source of information from the airplane, the Cockpit Voice Recorder, was not installed on this airplane as they were not required at the time of this crash. One year after this crash, in 1967, cockpit voice recorders and flight data recorders became mandatory for all commercial aircraft registered in the United States and elsewhere soon after. Recorders, by the way, are now located in the rear of the plane, where their survival is more likely. So, without weather data from the day of this accident, and without data from the airplane itself, I'm at a loss to know what the airplane experienced, or what it could have experienced. But then I found a report from the U.S. Navy. A Navy A-4 Skyhawk, which is a small, single-seater fighter jet that saw heavy use during the Vietnam War, it was being used to help search for the wreckage of Speedbird 911. The Skyhawk was in the same area and on the same day as the 707, and when flying near Mount Fuji, the pilot reported severe turbulence. Turbulence to such a degree that he thought the small plane would break up while in flight. With that kind of information, the Navy then grounded the fighter jet for an inspection to ensure there was no damage. They discovered that the plane had experienced acceleration forces ranging from positive 9 to negative 4 g's. A G is the force of gravity, so 9 G's would be 9 times the force of gravity pushing a body downward, or forcing the blood in your body away from your head and toward your feet. 9 G's is about the limit for most fighter pilots to withstand, though some can tolerate more for brief periods. A negative G is the opposite, it's when the blood is rushing to your head, away from your feet. A person can feel weightless at anything more, or anything less, than zero G. For the Skyhawk pilot, that would have been a wild ride, but it gives us at least some data to relate to the 707. That and the 120 km per hour wind reported from the weather station at the top of Mount Fuji, which would indicate the likelihood of severe turbulence. Speaking of G loads, The investigation revealed that there was another form of data recorder on board the airplane, and it was a surprising source. It would likely not surprise you if I told you that many people today use a GoPro or cell phone to record the takeoff landing and many parts of the flight. Would it surprise you to know that people did the same thing in 1966? No GoPros back then, of course, but cameras like the Canon Single 8, the Minolta Zoom 8, or the more common Kodak Brownie 8, were not uncommon in the hands of passengers in the early days of the jet age. And so it was that there was a passenger aboard Speedbird 911 who was recording the spectacular views of Mount Fuji. After all, that's why the captain had taken the airplane near the volcano. Remarkably, neither the camera or the film was destroyed in the crash. And when investigators developed the film, they saw images outside the window of the mountains near Mount Fuji and then an abrupt shift to the interior of the plane. In between, there were two dropped frames. At first, the investigators were baffled as to the reason for the unexposed frames between the other two scenes, outside and inside the plane. But then they subjected the camera to stress tests and discovered that at G-loads of up to 7.5 Gs, the camera's film feeder mechanism would jam. The theory then was that the plane experienced enough Gs to jam the camera, at least seven and a half Gs. It was an interesting discovery and certainly an unorthodox way to estimate the forces the plane was subjected to. I also found an article from Time Magazine that was published two months after the crash. At the time, investigators acknowledged that the exact cause of the crash was still a mystery. It was also mentioned as part of the FAA report that stress fractures of the bolt holes around the tail assembly that I mentioned earlier were caused by metal fatigue, not the crash. As many 707s had been flying since introduced in 1958, and many of those had amassed more than 250,000 flight hours, metal fatigue had to be considered. Speedbird 911 was purchased new in 1960 and had 19,523 flight hours on the airframe at the time of the incident and already metal fatigue was apparent. Earlier, I mentioned the story of the B-52 that lost its vertical stabilizer while flying low-level training maneuvers in 1963. In that case, though the low-level turbulence was considered severe, it was determined that it was not the turbulence but the actions of the pilot when pulling the bomber steeply up to climb away from the turbulence that caused the tail to separate, and that the separation was ultimately attributed to the bolts that held the tail section in place. Following the investigation, bolts in the B-52 tail assemblies were strengthened and then replaced. Likewise, the tail bolt holes in nearly 200 707s were inspected and repaired. With the crash of Speedbird 911 in mind, the FAA stated in 1966 that no crash has ever been linked to such defects as the holes holding the tail bolts in place. As part of our radar contact loss team, I asked retired FedEx Captain Michelle to weigh in with her thoughts. One of the things that she mentioned was that flying a commercial jetliner VMC visual meteorological conditions is an odd choice. It was a four and a half hour international flight from Tokyo to Hong Kong. This was no time for sightseeing. The large 707 had no business flying low near Mount Fuji, well off its designated course and altitude. Additionally, any commercial jetliner pilot should know the setup pattern for mountain wave turbulence and should know that flying near a mountain like Mount Fuji with the post-frontal winds as they were would be a bad idea. It's, I think, easy to agree with Captain Michelle. Yet, at 45 years old, the captain of Speedbird 911 had been flying the B-707 since 1960 and had flown bombers for the RAF in World War II. He was twice awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. He was not inexperienced. He had flown this Mount Fuji sightseeing route just two weeks before. At a minimum, the captain should have been aware of when skies are blue, Fuji is angry. And if not the actual Japanese proverb, then at least the likelihood of mountain wave setup conditions given the conditions. As we've previously discussed in episodes of Radar Contact Lost, aviation is always learning from the mistakes of the past. In 2023, Captain Michelle has the 2020 hindsight of more than 100 years of technology, training, and collective experiences to shape her view. The captain of Speedbird 911 had about half of that. Considering this, could I then suggest an overconfident captain who believed he and his 707 could handle whatever Mount Fuji could throw at him? Though willfully straying off course, perhaps the captain experienced though he was, did not know just how dangerous the conditions would be, or could be. I will add that the BOAC aircrew should have received a weather briefing before they departed Haneda that included possible turbulence near Mount Fuji, except Given that the flight was planned to be much higher, where mountain wave turbulence would not have been so severe, and that the planned route would have been more than 60 miles east and southeast of Mount Fuji, the weather briefing might not have been as detailed in this regard. Remember, the change to VMC occurred shortly before takeoff, so the pre-flight weather briefing had likely already occurred prior to the change. I mentioned a couple of minutes ago that a good pilot would not put his or her airplane in a position to be affected by turbulence which makes me ask then was this plane downed by severe turbulence or was this plane downed by pilot error the error being that the pilot strayed off course into dangerous conditions then again in 1966 the effect of wind shear and turbulence on aircraft was not well understood I'll mention here that I could not find any other crashes of airplanes around Mount Fuji after the crash of BOAC Flight 911. Large or small, including hang gliders and paramotors, as Google searches for airplane crashes near Mount Fuji are dominated by the BOAC crash, almost to the exclusion of anything else. I did see one snippet. That indicated mountain wave crashes near Mount Fuji are not uncommon, but I can't back that up with any details about the actual crashes. There were a few sightseeing crashes before this one, but this was the last of these so-called impromptu, VMC style, do-it-for-the-passengers commercial sightseeing airliner crashes. The dawn of the jet age had occurred only a few years before, and as the skies became more and more crowded, global air transportation and air traffic control matured quickly. The days of a pilot taking a commercial jetliner off-route for a sightseeing trip to please the passengers came to an end shortly after this crash. I searched back through the records of the B-707 and the very similar B-720 and found no crashes like this one that were attributed to mountain wave turbulence ripping the vertical stabilizer off the airplane. There were a few crashes that involved mid-air breakups. An example, in 1963, there was a Boeing 720 that broke up in mid-air near Miami, Florida. This was due to wind shear related to a nearby thunderstorm. In this case, pilot error and difficulties related to the autopilot caused a loss of control and then the plane broke up as it was diving toward the ground, exceeding the design limitations of the aircraft. Generally, the Boeing 707 was considered a safe airplane and pilots did not complain about it being difficult to fly. In fact, the 707 came along at a perfect time that allowed its safety and overall design to really stand out. This was at a time when other aircraft were struggling. The first commercial jetliner, the de Havilland Comet, had a tendency, unfortunately, to break up in flight, a trait that was later traced to metal fatigue, which was a problem that was not well understood in the early days of metal fabrication and aircraft design and construction. The French Caravelle and the American DC-8 were in development, but still a year away from rollout so the new, safe 707 came to market at the perfect time. Given what was flying already at the time, a bold statement began to make its rounds at the airports. If it ain't Boeing, I ain't going. However, a couple of years after the original 707, Boeing stretched and widened the plane, and then there were some difficulties. To address this, Boeing added some height to the tail, about 40 inches, that's about one meter taller, And they also added a stabilizing fin to the fuselage below the tail that would be called a ventral fin that seemed to improve the flight characteristics so the new tail and fin were retrofitted across all the 707s speedbird 911 was the newer version did the added height and increased surface area of the new vertical stabilizer provide more airplane for the mountain wave turbulence to interact with A larger tail works well at higher altitudes where the air is thinner, but it can be problematic at lower altitudes where the air is heavier and more dense. That said, the 707 was designed for high-altitude cruising where the new tail, the new larger tail, would be more effective, not for sightseeing in the lower altitudes around mountains. There was nothing in the final report that indicated the newer, larger tail contributed to the crash, or the breakup of the airplane, or the stress fractures that were noted around the bolt holes. The last 707 was manufactured in 1978, and the 707 is no longer operated by any major airlines. It was considered a safe airplane, and British Overseas Airline Corporation had an admirable safety record. Though retired from commercial airlines, the 707 is still being flown regularly today for aerial refueling duty in the air forces of the United States, Chile, France, and Turkey. In this capacity, the plane is known as the KC-135 Stratotanker. The production of the KC-135 stopped in 1965, but the platform has received continuous updates in the decade since and has survived several plans and contracts for replacement Despite these replacements for the KC-135 that are already in service, there is no imminent plan to retire the 707 in an Air Force uniform. Here's something that's off-topic, but while looking at the history of the 707, I was amazed at the number of hijackings and bombings that began in the late 1960s and continued into the early 1980s. There really were quite a few. The 707 was a popular airplane, and more than 850 were manufactured between 1956 and 1978. Unfortunately, many of them ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time. And here's something off-topic, perhaps slightly less off-topic. If you listen to episode 10 of Radar Contact Lost, when a volcano silenced a Boeing 747 high over the Indian Ocean, you may remember that the call sign of that 747 was Speedbird 9, and the call sign of the 707 in this episode is Speedbird 911. That's no coincidence. Speedbird is the call sign of British Airways aircraft and BOAC before that. It originated with a stylized Speedbird emblem of Imperial Airways, which was the precursor to BOAC and British Airways. We're coming to the end of this episode, but there are still two more things that I promised at the top of this podcast. They're not related to this crash, but I cannot tell you about this crash and not tell you about the first item, the state of affairs, the state of aviation affairs in Japan at the time of this crash. This will take your idea of bad luck to a whole new level. Here we go. Speedbird 911 had diverted to a different airport the night before the crash due to stormy weather. This was the stormy weather we talked about earlier. A cold front had gone through, there were strong thunderstorms in the area. The plane was supposed to go to Haneda International Airport on Friday, but the bad weather diverted them to a nearby Air Force base where the passengers and crew spent the night. The next morning, Saturday, they flew the short distance over to Haneda and got back on schedule, at least as best they could. It's a good thing they diverted. Another plane, Canadian Pacific Flight 409, a DC-8, had not diverted in the stormy conditions Friday night and crashed on the Haneda airport runway. There were only 8 survivors, 64 fatalities. As is often the case, busy airports will return to regular flying operations as quickly as they are able, and so it was that Speedbird 911 on Saturday morning taxied past the still smoldering wreckage of Flight 409 just before turning onto the runway for their departure. As we now know, less than 20 minutes later, Speedbird 911 fell from the sky in pieces and crashed to the ground. That means there were two major commercial airline crashes with 188 dead in less than 24 hours and only 60 or so miles apart. But this was only a small part of the bad luck. A streak of aviation accidents that began less than a month before continued for several more months. On February 4th, an all-Nippon Airways flight, a Boeing 727, crashed into Tokyo Bay while on approach to the same airport, Haneda International. 133 people perished, there were no survivors. The cause of the crash was never determined, although it seemed the pilot descended to the airport too quickly and crashed into the bay instead. The skies at the time were clear, but it was dark as it was about 7 p.m. local time, so it seemed pilot error was to blame. To compound this tragedy, while searching for the wreckage, a Japanese military helicopter crashed into the water, killing all four people on board. In August, five months after the Mount Fuji incident, a Japan Airlines Convair 880, an American-made narrow-body jetliner, crashed on a training flight while taking off from Haneda Airport, the same airport again. All five crew members were killed, but fortunately, there was nobody else on the plane. And then, in November, another all-Nippon Airways plane crashed when it first overshot the runway at Osaka International, and then, while attempting to correct and go around, it lost altitude while turning and crashed into the Sea of Japan, killing all 50 on board. In all, these six crashes, including the military helicopter, killed 375 people in less than 12 months. 1966 was a difficult year for aviation in Japan. Some of these crashes, even today, are listed as cause undetermined. I think one of the significant factors contributing to this classification is, at the time, Japan did not require airliners to have cockpit voice recorders or flight data recorders, making what exactly happened all the more difficult to discern. This is not the case today. The second thing I promised to mention is about the hurricane hunters. Specifically, why is it that these hurricane hunter aircraft fly directly into hurricanes and they don't crash? If mountain wave turbulence can rip apart a 707 and airplanes in general give a wide berth to thunderstorms, how is it that these airplanes and their flight crews willfully fly into some of the most dangerous storms on Earth? Well, it can be explained in one sentence. Vertical wind shear versus horizontal wind shear. Simply, planes are built to stand tremendous horizontal shear because of the speeds they fly. But these forces are within a plane's design parameters. Now, with each plane, those parameters will be different. But still, horizontal shear is not a crashing concern. Vertical wind shear, on the other hand, is completely different. Vertical shear is why thunderstorms are so dangerous, and why mountain wave turbulence is so dangerous. Planes just aren't built to withstand the shear from powerful winds moving up or down. In a hurricane, the pilots can see the thunderstorms either with their eyes or with the plane's weather radar, and they will avoid thunderstorms in a hurricane just as they would in Texas on a hot summer day. Additionally, the primary aircraft of the hurricane hunters is the WC-130, a variation of the C-130, already a stout, battlefield-ready military air transport aircraft. In fact, the only modification to the WC-130 from the standard C-130 is the addition of weather sensor equipment. Hurricane hunters with NOAA, that's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, also fly into hurricanes, but their airplane is the P-3 Orion, another stout military aircraft. Thankfully, the last crash of a Hurricane Hunter aircraft was in 1974, when the Air Force Hurricane Hunters were flying into Typhoon Bess and the plane was lost over the South China Sea, though there had been five fatal Hurricane Hunter crashes prior to that time. That's all for this time on Radar Contact Lost, the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to see pictures of Speedbird 911 disintegrating near Mount Fuji, there are pictures and the account of the crash on the website thisdayinaviation.com. Just look up March 5th, 1966. I'd like to thank the team here at Radar Contact Lost. The RCL team is a great team because of these talented folks. They help make this podcast detailed, thorough, and accurate, and make sure that I don't stray too far off the glide path. On the air traffic control side, we have former U.S. Air Force and FAA controllers Cindy and Michael Hintz and Tony Gorham. On the weather side, we have meteorologists Chris Abert and Nathan Stanford. On the piloting side, we have former U.S. Air Force and now retired FedEx Captain Michelle Acorn and not yet retired FedEx First Officer Larry Gregory. This series is researched, written, edited, and produced by me. If you like this episode, please give a like and leave a review if you can, and tell your friends. On Instagram, follow at Radar Contact Lost Podcast. It's the only place where I communicate with the world. I provide behind-the-scenes, time schedules, interesting factoids, and more. Check it out. We're also on YouTube. If you'd like to reach out, send an email to rclpodcast1 at gmail.com. That's Podcast the number one, at gmail.com. With each new episode of Radar Contact Lost, I will bring you interesting but tragic stories of plane crashes from across the United States and from around the world. When these crashes involve the weather as a possible cause or as a contributing factor, I'll rely on my 40-year career as an Air Force broadcast and commercial meteorologist with a specialty of aviation meteorology to explain what happened and why. I'll also lean on my experts in air traffic control, meteorology, and piloting to peel back the curtain to take a closer look at what really happened. Lastly, let me thank you, the listeners. I'm happy to bring you these stories. To all of you who have a love of weather, aviation, and history, just like me. Thanks for climbing aboard and settling in for the latest from the Radar Contact Loss team. I'm Dave Gorham.